Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The final words of Jesus in his native Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words which we saw last week come straight out of a psalm Jesus would have memorized, written centuries before. A psalm written in the face of incredible human evil and excruciating physical torment. My God, my God, why? But I am thrilled that these words are in Psalm 22 and that Jesus echoed the sentiment because that means the God of the Bible isn't afraid of your questions. He isn't afraid of your doubts. More than that, he invites you to bring all that you are to him, regardless of the feeling that you have. My nine-year-old question to mum, why did God let dad's plane crash, is allowed, is invited, is permissible. But this doesn't make any sense in any other tradition. As we saw last week, it makes no sense within Hinduism. Because all pain is the result of my karma. I deserve what I get. This question makes no sense in Buddhism. Because all of my pains will evaporate when I learn the secret of enlightenment to detach from all affections. And then suffering evaporates. Within Islam, this question borders on blasphemy. How dare I question the decree and finger of Allah? Peace is found in submission to the inscrutable will. And of course, within an atheistic context, as we discussed last week, these words are senseless because there's no rhyme or reason and there's no one to put the question why to. There's no one on the other end of the phone. But in the biblical tradition alone, these words make sense. The God of the Bible urges us to approach him with all that we are and ask him why. Because it's precisely in this mode of personal engagement with God that we are in a position to hear his reply. And as we turn this morning to begin to look at something of his reply, the biblical answer to the problem of pain, I want to remind you of something I said last week that was not a rhetorical flourish. I cling to the Bible's view on pain and suffering not because I think it has a knockdown argument because I think it's the only perspective that isn't completely knocked out. For me, the biblical understanding is the last one standing. So I still have questions, but I've got nowhere else to go than what I find in the Scriptures. And we begin with perhaps the most obvious problem, the problem of the will. It hardly goes or needs saying. 
that much of the pain that we feel is the direct or indirect result of human beings exercising their capacity for evil. I only need to mention place names, right? For you to think of unspeakable acts of evil. Rwanda, New York, Palestine. And some of you are sitting there today with the wounds of more personal examples of this human capacity for evil. It begs the question, why doesn't God step in and override the will when he sees a terrorist wanting to act in a certain way, when he sees someone wanting to harm another, why doesn't he step in and override the will? And I want to say, I don't fully know. I don't fully know. Because my understanding of God is such that he could do whatever he likes. I believe he can and does move human hearts. So there is a mystery for me. But I've been helped when someone put to me, why don't you turn that question around? Not why doesn't God override the will, but what world would we be living in if he did every time you went to exercise your will? What if every single time a crook wanted to pull the trigger of a gun, a husband thought of betraying his wife, a businesswoman wanted to withhold resources from the poor. God stepped in and overrode the will. What kind of world would we be in? And why stop there? What if uh, every time I wanted to buy a nice bottle of wine or go out to a restaurant with friends, I found myself mysteriously wanting to give the same amount of money away to World Vision? What sort of world would that be? Very probably, it wouldn't be a world where we would be asking why does God allow evil? But we might be asking the more difficult philosophical question, why has the Creator made us without any will? Except, of course, in that scenario, such a God wouldn't allow that thought in our head, right? As soon as it would pop in, he'd go, thank you, I love that. For better or worse, the Bible and human experience make clear that we have the perverse ability to say no to justice, no to marital faithfulness, no to sharing resources, no to kindness. We can say no. The opening paragraphs of chapters of the Bible portray Adam as called to obey but capable of disobeying. So in Genesis 2, he is told to obey God's ways. And in Genesis 3, we're told he disobeyed God's ways. The portrait of the opening sections of the Bible is that we are called to follow God's ways, but capable of refusing. Now, please don't let... Um, Clichés about forbidden fruit and disputes about human origins distract from the more profound point Genesis 2 and 3 make. This is the universal story being played out here. 
In fact, the word Adam, Adam, it's, it's not a name in Hebrew. I'm sorry, Adam. It's the word mankind, humanity. This is deliberately the universal story called to obey, capable of disobeying. And we use that capability with tragic consequences. We see it all around us. In large or small ways, uh, we are all victims and contributors to human evil. I hope you don't feel that's being too harsh. It seems absolutely true to me. And to this, the Bible offers not so much a philosophical explanation as a promise of restoration, a promise for a day of justice, when God will right the wrongs of the moral sphere, the so-called day of judgment. It's so important to understand the two sides of the day of judgment, because in as much as we are victims in the human capacity for evil. The Bible actually promises this day of judgment as a comfort to you. I know you sort of think, day of judgment's never sounded very comforting to me in the past, but actually in Scripture there's a consistent theme that God's judgment is coming to comfort you. Think of Isaiah 61, one of many passages we could look at this morning. A passage interpreted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus, actually. But in the Old Testament we read, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. What's this saying? In this text and many like it, the promise of a day of vengeance, a day of judgment, a day of justice is not a theological scare tactic designed to make you more religious. It's God's pledge to you. It's his promise to the wounded, to the alienated, to the oppressed, that he hears your cry for justice and is coming and will bring a day when every wrong is righted. And on that day, we are comforted. God's judgment, therefore, is a subset of his love. It's precisely because God loves. Let me stop there and just say, Andy, I think we've suddenly gained volume and you should turn it down a little bit. Thanks, mate. It's because God loves the victims of Auschwitz that he will bring his judgment to bear on the perpetrators. It's because God loves the massacred Aboriginal communities of 19th century Australia, that he will bring justice to bear on those who committed these crimes. And it's because God loves the people of the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, that he will bring to justice corrupt third world regimes and neglectful materialists in the West. His love fuels his justice. But as soon as I say that, it's obvious, isn't it, that there's a less comforting aspect of the day of justice? Because 
God doesn't just see the grand acts of evil. He sees the evil in Roseville. And one of the great things about being a minister on the North Shore for the last 15 years is I have given up the conservative belief that middle-class people are moral, that they don't have evil in their hearts. I'm with the radical view of the Bible that evil runs through and through. God sees that too. And so God's pledge to bring comfort to the oppressed actually flips around and is a warning that we may indeed face the judgment of God. Revelation chapter 20 is one such passage. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. God's pledge to satisfy our longing for justice turns out to be a plea to come to God in this period of amnesty between now and the day and receive forgiveness. This is why the death of Jesus is so central to Christianity. Because the death of Jesus is the only way out. The death of Jesus is the means by which the judgment of God due to people on the judgment day can fall on Jesus. So that any who turn to God for mercy, this side of the day, can be forgiven. You know, it's easy in this discussion of evil and suffering to presume to put God on trial. Yeah? And forget the need occasionally to question our own participation in the harm of the world and our own need of mercy. Someone on Twitter this morning tweeted a quote from Bono that I wasn't going to include. You know, they make this a sermon where I don't quote Bono. But it was too good. Bono apparently said, God doesn't need a lawyer. Just honest songs. Huh. The man is too cool. <laughs> God will answer the problem of the human will with a day of justice where he will right the wrongs. But he calls on us to call on him for mercy. Well, I'm well aware that the promise of a day of justice against human evil only resolves so much. What about so-called natural suffering, right? Yeah? What about cancers, plane crashes, earthquakes? What does the Bible say about the problem of nature? The problem of nature. I remember when this question came with great force to me. It actually wasn't when dad died. My questions then were far more simplistic. It was actually years ago when I was a, a new minister over at St. Clement's Mossman and this young dad walked into the church, having not been in church for years, was not a religious man at all. Nick's baby girl, Alice, 18 months old, had contracted a brain virus that left her seriously damaged. The doctors were quite sure she would never speak, walk, or feed herself. 
And faced with this, Nick came to church and found the loudest guy in the room, sat down with me in the back right pew and said, how, how does this happen in a world where there's a creator? What does the Bible say to this? Well, as strange as it sounds to our ears, the Bible teaches that the painful disorder of the physical world is somehow linked to humanity's rejection of the Creator. That there is some weird connection between human activity and the environment itself. Now, there's a sense in which, because of the rise of environmental science, we, we sort of have a way of thinking about this. We, we are now used to the idea that human activity can bring degradation to the earth, right? If you're a climate skeptic, you know, you are welcome to. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we, we, all, uh, we all agree that in some ways, whether it's climate change or not, humanity can affect the degradation of the earth. That would have puzzled the ancients, the Bible writers, no end. That would have just seen the most off-the-wall idea. But equally, they had a view of humanity's relation to the creation that we find a little puzzling. That basically says, humanity's rejection of the Almighty, the Creator, has brought disorder into the creation. So that, in the evocative imagery of Genesis 3, we read this. To Adam, God said, because you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. In more theological vocabulary, the Apostle Paul in the first century, in Romans 8, says pretty much the same thing. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I guess what scientists call the second law of thermodynamics, biblical theologians were talking about from the beginning. Decay in creation. So here's the thing. Did God fashion a particular virus and place it in the brain of an 18-month-old baby? Within Islam, the answer is an unequivocal yes. All that happens is the direct decree and finger of Allah. The Bible is a little more circumspect. It equally holds that God is sovereign, but it also says something has happened to creation. That there is decay in creation and therefore secondary causes. There is, if I can put it like this, an echo 
of humanity's estrangement from the Creator. From the DNA inside the human body to the plate tectonics under the earth, there is mixed into the beauty and order some ugliness, some disorder. My friend, Nick, needed very little convincing of that. He wanted to know whether God intended to do anything about it. You know what? More than an explanation, Nick wanted a resolution. And he would have traded one for the other in a flash. And to this question, the Bible does have a stunning reply. A promise of restoration. And here we arrive at another one of the profound differences between Eastern thought and biblical thought. If a Hindu guru was here or a Buddhist monk, they would tell you the solution to the problem of nature is removing yourself from nature completely. The great hope of Hinduism is to be no longer born and reborn into the physical world, but for your spirit to leave physicality and enter into merger with Brahman, ultimate reality. Buddhists say the same thing. They don't call it moksha, they call it nirvana. Nirvana is defined as the cessation of all mental and physical activities. The Eastern solution to the problem of the frustration of creation is to be removed from creation, is for creation itself to be moved out of the picture. But the Bible's hope is radically different. The Bible promises that on the day of justice, when God brings order to the moral sphere, that day will also be a day of renewal, bringing order to the physical sphere. The two are intimately linked. And in our public Bible reading that Harry just brought us from Revelation 21, we read of this renewal of all things. But it's interesting because this Revelation 21 follows hot on the heels of the passage I just read about the day of judgment, about books being opened and people being judged. We move from judgment to renewal or restoration, and we read in the words of Revelation 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, echoing Genesis chapter 1. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now God dwells with humanity, echoing Genesis 2 and 3. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Romans chapter 8 says the same thing, but in less pictorial language. We read in Romans 8, the passage I quoted a moment ago, the creation waits in eager expectation. The language is so crucial to understand. It's not we are waiting in eager expectation to be delivered from creation, the creation is waiting in eager expectation. The creation itself will be liberated. Not that we will be liberated from creation, but creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We, this is now talking about us, eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation waits for a renewal. Our bodies wait for 
a renewal. The biblical hope, I know I said this in our Spectator's Guide to the Bible series a lot, but I keep saying it. The, the biblical hope is not to be blown out. It's to be renewed, restored, glorified. The great hope of the Bible is renewal, not removal of creation, which is why the resurrection of Jesus is so crucial. Christians have always affirmed that Jesus was raised bodily. Only fancy theologians who would be better in English literary departments than theological departments think that you can have a metaphorical resurrection. It's nuts in a Palestinian first century setting to think that they would fathom the idea of a metaphorical resurrection. And the early Christians always said that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is God's first act of new creation. It's his proof and pledge in history of what he will do on the great day. That he can breathe new life where there is death and decay and chaos. The resurrection is described in the New Testament as the first fruits of God's coming glorious new creation. This is why we cling to this bodily resurrection of Jesus as our great hope. Because it's not just pie in the sky. Something has happened in history as a down payment of something that's going to happen at the climax of history. Renewal. Resurrection. When my friend Nick discovered all this, as he spent weeks studying this theme, what the New Testament said, when it dawned on him that what he longed for most, not an explanation, but restoration, as a man without any previous faith, he gave himself to Christ. He gave himself to Christ. Because he knew that what he longed for in his heart, God said, will come true. He wrote me this email. I guess a couple of years after I'd met him. He was living in Brussels. He said, Alice being sick has enabled us to learn more about Christianity and put perspective on life. The most important thing for us is to know that Alice will pass to the new creation where she will be healthy. She will feel no pain. We will be there to share this with her. And then he added, I also talked to my mother about this as she died with cancer. And it was comforting to her. There is, there is so much more to say. So much more to say. And next week, I want to touch on what I think is the most important dimension of what the Bible says about pain and suffering. But for now, let me try and tie up all this theology into a few thoughts that I, I think help us navigate what we experience. I don't know if the Bible's explanation of evil and disorder is intellectually satisfying to you. I don't know. I still have loose ends. If I don't go too much longer, we're going to have a question time, but I guarantee you I have more questions than you do. But... I find myself thinking, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? 
Could I really believe that all my pain is my karma, that my desert? Can I really believe that if only I remove all my attachments to the things of this world and to my relationships, then suffering evaporates? Can I believe that? Can I believe that everything is the eternal decree of God and his finger and in history and I can't question it? Can I bring myself to believe that there is no rhyme or reason, just blind, pitiless indifference? I can't. I can't. At the explanatory level, uh, I can put up with my loose ends if they are the alternatives. But, however satisfying the Bible's explanation is to me, there's something much more precious in the Bible than explanation. It's something I would not trade for anything. Restoration, the promise of restoration. Man, I wouldn't give that up. Nick, wouldn't give that up. The Bible promises full justice will be done and seen to be done. That all evil will be righted. The Bible promises full restoration of the disorder in this creation. If I can put it like this, God will make it up to us. God will make it up to us. You know, last week when Emily sang Be Still My Soul, she really got me in these lines here. Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Restoration. The same idea was put down in an extraordinary quotation I want to read to you from Dostoevsky, that great Russian intellectual and novelist and dissident, a man who, as you can tell by just looking at him, suffered. A man who spent years in Siberia, oppressed, repressed, damaged. But in the brothers Karamazov, he puts into the words, puts into the mouth of one of the characters, um, Ivan, the intellectual, words that express his own enduring hope. Let me read these to you. Like a babe, I trust that the wounds will heal the scars will vanish, that the sorry and ridiculous spectacle of man's disagreements and clashes will disappear like a pitiful mirage, and that in the end, 
in the universal finale, at the moment universal harmony is achieved, something so magnificent will take place that it will satisfy every human heart, allay all indignation, pay for all human crimes, for all the blood shed by men, and enable everyone not only to forgive everything, but also to justify everything that has happened to men. Dostoevsky died alone in his flat in St. Petersburg. And when they found him, on his lap was a copy of the New Testament, which he'd been given in Siberia. I don't know how intellectually satisfying this immense intellect found the Bible's explanation of evil and suffering. But we can be pretty sure this man found the promise of restoration satisfying. That something so magnificent will take place that it will satisfy every human heart. I believe that. And in this world of evil and pain, I will take restoration over explanation every time. Let me close. I read a story in the Atlantic Monthly about the legendary jazz trumpeter, Wynton Marsalis. This man, regarded as one of the greatest jazz players we've ever known. And the journal in the Atlantic Monthly tells how he went on one sleepy August evening to a tiny little jazz bar in Greenwich Village, New York. And he saw who he thought was Winston Marsalis just doing an incognito gig. And he was looking at him. The play sounded like Marsalis. And then on the fourth song of the set, Marsalis stepped forward, took the mic, and played a haunting ballad. And it was clear that it was Marsalis. The journo says, the peace can bring out the sadness of any scene. And Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. And then at the high point of this ballad, when the audience was spellbound, Someone's mobile phone went off at full volume in blaring techno beep, 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 beep. And he said the audience was shocked and sort of embarrassed and, and giggled. People started giggling and picking up their drinks, he says. The moment, the whole performance unraveled. Marsalis just stopped playing, eyes arched toward the audience. And the journal said he wrote down in his little notepad the words, magic ruined. 
The crowd started to just talk amongst themselves. It really looked like the gig was over. Then Marcella started to play. Note for note, the horrible mobile phone sound. <laughs> and then he started to improvise this horrible bleep, bleep, bleep. And then bring in sections from the former piece until we're told by this journo who we witnessed this thing, he repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off, resolved. The ovation was tremendous. The Bible's explanation for the evil and suffering is intellectually satisfying enough for me. But the Bible's promise of restoration thrills me. The Bible teaches that all the discord of human evil and physical suffering will give way in the hands of the eternal maestro as he weaves us back to the moment of harmony and beauty and an eternal melody. And we will look back and say what magic, what magic. I don't know exactly how he's going to do it. I don't know what it's going to involve. I got some speculations that satisfy. I got some speculations that thrill. And that makes me think if I can think of some thrilling speculations, imagine what the reality of the eternal God's going to be. The God who entered our world of pain and died on a cross for our forgiveness and rose in a body can do immeasurably more than I can imagine as he weaves it all back to his beautiful melody. I, like a babe, trust that the wounds will heal, the scars will vanish, and that in the end, in the universal finale, something so magnificent will take place that it will satisfy every human heart, allay all indignation, and enable us not only to forgive everything, but to justify everything that has happened to men. <laughs>